This is John DeFalb at John Sandow's Bookshop in Chelsea, London, and I'm delighted to introduce Martin Latham, who has agreed to do a podcast for us about his new book, The Bookseller's Tale, published by Penguin on 3rd of September. Martin has spent much of the last 30 years managing the Canterbury branch of Waterstones, but he has fitted in a great deal of reading. His book is a delicious account of what books mean to people and have meant through the ages, including various aspects of the book trade. It is of particular interest to me, for while I've been managing John Sanders for about the same length of time, I worked very briefly for Martin in 1985 in a long-gone independent bookshop in Chelsea called Slaney and Mackay. So welcome, Martin. Um, Lovely to be here. Give a little rundown of of what you make of your book, why you wrote it. Yes, I started... um, wanting to write about what books are meant to me in my life and about bookshop bookshop life because I think there have been books about bookshops which have depended partly on sort of laughing at the customers and um, trying to be a bit like Black's Books everyone's mentioned and yeah. I think it's a far more joyous, joyous and dare I say culturally important profession than that Yeah. Um, and then it morphed into something and my editor kept on saying what's the arc here and I never quite knew the arc and I never quite knew what what they meant Um, but I just thought I'd started off with comfort books and it it ended up being a discursive history of bookselling with bits of memoir because I think non-fiction has changed and you can't do a big extended Wikipedia anymore and I get bored with that anyway so I couldn't help breaking in every now and again like a minotaur and putting in personal stuff to bring it alive I suppose. Well and it would be a bit absurd writing about other booksellers without acknowledging your own experience. Yeah and also I suppose it's come at a time in my life, this is a bit of a confession I think, a time in my life when I really do have decided I love it and I don't have any background thoughts that I wish I'd done anything else. I think fate dealt me in the end a good hand, really. Yeah. A good hand. Of all the ups and downs of Waterstones and Slaney Mackay and book selling and yeah. those times you used to meet people at parties and say, uh, a few years ago, I work in a bookshop when Kindle was, and they'd say, oh, I'm so sorry. Yes. As if you'd had so a So, what are you going to do next when you, what's yes. your real life going to be? Oh, I had that in Cheltenham, I remember. Somebody, a very sort of glamorous woman who did programmes on the BBC said to me, hey, What's all this bookshop? Well, it's all this bookshop nonsense, Martin. Yeah. And I didn't know what she meant, and she meant, when are you going to do something, sort of punch your weight or something, yes. or get a job in well, the Cheltenham Festival or something? It's um, curious phenomenon that in Europe, bookselling is something you can do a diploma or a degree, and it's a recognised profession, whereas here it's yeah. something that people fall into by accident. British amateurishness. I've heard that, yeah. that in Germany they used to, or they did call booksellers Herr Doctor. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's an evocation. Sorry, I didn't really answer a question. It is a history of bookselling. I wanted it to be in the biography section, and I managed to sort of get it called biography. And the dreaded um, review that was out recently had it down as a memoir, which I'm pleased to buy. But it's not a traditional memoir. I was um, thinking about it in relation to our Christmas catalogue, and think. Do I put it in history? Do I put it in biography? Do I put it in literature and ideas? I can't put it in all three. But no. It's a, uh, but it'll probably end up 
um, seeing what else is in those sections and see how it balances with the others. There are a few books, aren't there, that are ha very hard to mm. shelve like that, yeah. and they suffer for it. I think Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, The Devil's Dictionary, Ambrose yes. I remember two staff having an argument about that and sending it into each other's sections. Yeah. Uh, hopefully it won't be that unclassifiable, but mainly memoir, I think. But I love the history of it. And I think, uh, I kept on thinking, why has nobody ever said this? Somebody who knows a lot about history has written to me and said, I never knew about chapbooks. The chapbook section is really interesting because yeah. there, um, there have been very scholarly things about chapbooks, but I'm not aware of any thing that, is, that we might have had through our doors particularly, or had on the, perhaps through the doors, but not kept on the shelves as a general thing. Tell us a bit about the chapbook. Well, I think it's funny that there's a South Carolina University project studying them in England. There's still not an awful lot being being uh, collated about them. A lot of it's on the website. A lot of them were thrown out because they don't have the silly yeah. ISBN number. They're not a traditional mm -hmm. book, a lot of them. So basically, they're cheap. They're called flying books in Germany, which I love. Mm -hmm. They're cheap little books, often with no cover. Maybe the equivalent of on social media, a tweet or something, although mm -hmm. I'm not on Twitter. A bit longer than that. In fact, much longer than that. So there'll be a polemic, a fairy tale. Um, often there would have been someone's speech on the gallows, and they'll be quickly run off in a little local press, a few pages, often no cover, sensationalistic, and they would be sold by peddlers, and people like Dickens and Stevenson loved them, and Stevenson actually wrote one, and I think Burke in Parliament talked about his love for them, and um, people, they were objects of great love and inspiration, and they embodied a lot of myth, fairy tale, and controversy, so they had a huge yes. role in history. But and a lot of them were lost. They in, in, in colossal quantities. The quantities were mind-boggling. I had to check. I was reading it recently. I had to check. Is that really that many? I think Scotland was meant to have had twenty-six thousand in a decade, and that they've only got about four thousand in the National Library of Scotland in Edinburgh. Huge amount of wasted. Millions. I mean, some of the figures in the book, the amounts that were produced in Germany at the height of the Reformation, um, yeah. representing Luther's views. Yeah. The, the thought, the thought that, that you describe. The Reformation being, in a sense, carried on the backs of these chapbooks. Yeah. You want? Well, I've, I've always wondered how did his ninety-nine theses get disseminated? How did people know about it? How did yeah, the Reformation apparently the, happen? Apparently, the whole banged on the door thing I read somewhere is a bit of a myth. Yeah. How did it? And I mean, the other um, fact which shows the importance of them in popular culture is these figure that. A lot of classics like Robinson Crusoe first came out in chapbook yes. and that's how they were received. And this Oxford academic, Abigail Williams, has challenged um, the way we see that the way people receive books like that, because 70% of them receive them in chapbook, abridged mm. form. Mm. And um, yeah, so many fascinating things about them. I, lo I love that section. It's hit a lot of people's um, hearts. Well, and the, your description of the peddlers as well, the people, and in particular, you talk about in Scotland. Yes, I love the Scottish ones. My editor loved the Scottish ones. They were well, piratical figures who were often dressed in a slightly pirate way because they were theatrical, like the characters in their stories, so they had to be entertaining. And the bit I loved was the fact that they would often just walk into a croft without knocking, sit down, because they had all the local news. They were like a version of Facebook or whatever people are using today instead of Facebook for social networking. Mm. Um, and they would sit down and 
do quite um, facile, transparent compliments of the man of the house and the woman of the house and the land on the croft and just then begin their tales and slowly open up their bag and start mm. selling the stories and books. Mm. And I love the one who used to play music as well and sometimes played music in the empty highland valleys for the birds on his way. The, the sense of these itinerant disseminators of information being understood and regular visitors all yeah. around, in, up hill and down dale, everywhere and that people knew who they were and were tuned in like a sort of walking system of, of information. And often unlicensed and they had these guilds with wonderful names like the Guild of Lothian Chapman and they had, one of them had appointed a lord and had a widow's fund. Wonderfully organised but almost completely lost to history mm. because a lot of them didn't pay a licence an itinerant trade. There was that wonderful description in a book of one of the last ones found in, in the 1900s and interviewed by an anonymous mm. journalist in the Dundee mm. Advertiser who's got a real sense of porkiness, is what the journalist calls it, and coquettishness yeah. about getting his wares out. Got and the gift of the gab. Yes, quite. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, the Autolycus, Autolycus quote says a lot about it. I end the chapbook chapter with um, something along the lines of, I know the business, a quick eye and a listening ear. And I thought when I read that, yes, I wish I'd remembered that when I started interviewing for booksellers yeah. decades ago, because that's yeah. all you need. Yeah. Um, and then they became stationary in their stalls and at shops yeah. and shops and were presumably resented by the itinerants. I think, I think so. Um, uh, the shops were resented, you mean? Yeah. Yes. Uh, there was that lovely, um, Chapman who considered setting up a shop one day but said I don't know whether he didn't know whether he could vegetate behind the counter I said <laughs> I, think, I think they love being out and about and selling um, and then there's an intermediate level we haven't talked about which is market stalls yeah. and how peddlers sold there and how Newton went out to the Stabridge Fair and bought lots of his books there yeah. and how Keats probably shopped at the Moorfields um, stalls and Farringdon Road which you and I will remember had mm. this great series of market stalls mm. and the booksellers by the same sold a lot of chat books and unofficial literature. Yeah. Uh, the connection there with the f dissemination of information during the French Revolution is yes um, of course interesting where the certainly the, the books that have been in and out here and I'm sure also with you repeatedly are Robert Danton's books yes as somebody who has brought to a wide audience the, the the way in which books got out and disseminated seditious information successfully. Well, I'm glad that John Sando sells them. I'm not sure I sold a lot in my um, bookshop, which is le probably less sellable than your stock. But he's he's really the man, isn't he? And such an unusual person, ex-journalist on New York Times yeah. or something. I, th I think one of them we probably sold partly because of his title, The Great Cat Massacre. Yes, um, that's wonderful. And uh, it is, I'm sure you, you must notice again and again as a, that, that, that one does sell books by their cover and for their title. And the idea that you can't judge a book by its cover, it's, um, I'm sure you have a slightly yeah. um, different view about it. Yeah, oh definitely. And we know that when publishers sometimes change the cover between hardback and paperback because it just didn't work. Mm. Um, I love the idea that chat books just had these vivid illustrations. They got straight in there, often yeah. with no cover at all. Yeah. 
um, and they were handed from hand to hand and often ended up as lavatory papers. So God knows how many people have read yeah. them. Um, and I think there's something else there, I, sort of pushing you maybe off your track, which is that people were unembarrassed about reading these sensational tales, what Chesterton calls tremendous trifles. Mm -hmm. They were far less embarrassed than now. Some customers feel this weighty feeling that they must be reading Anna Karenina, um, which I have read, but it did. I took a year over it, in and out of it. Whereas we should be able to enjoy racy and escapist tales as we did when we were children, because people like Dickens mm. and Stevenson did, and chap the whole chapbook section really shows that. That brings us back to the w where, in a way, you start your book, the, the talking about comfort books, yeah, um, and the importance of books for a lot of people as comfort, yeah. Um, those books that we both sort of sold over and over again, which are never going to be on any canon, but uh, I don't know, Forever Amber, um, yes, uh, or um, I Capture the Castle. Yeah. There's a great long list of such things um, which are loved by people mm. and uh, are so important in people's lives. I don't know what they mean, they mean, why they mean so much, but you can almost, if you had a heat sensor in this fantastic bookshop, um, I keep, my eyes keep straying to the shelves, they almost have got a bit of an aura of heat around them, I capture <laughs> the castle, and then yeah. it's very mysterious, they catch people, I think the phrase I used is, they're like a shot in the arm, um, and they're all from children's and adult books, and they're often books that can sit in both children's and the adult section. Mm. Mm. Um, but they're definitely out there, and you're right about them, academia doesn't really reflect them or incorporate them in the so-called canon. They're not susceptible often to analysis, or their charm isn't. I Capture the Castle is the one I keep thinking of, it's completely... Wonderful. Does your uh, um, work as a bookseller make you view uh, the canon or the, the, the role of books in people's lives differently from how you saw them when you were a student or postgrad student when you were in academia yourself. It's interesting, isn't it? Yes. Um, I said to my editor that Smollett didn't, didn't sell anymore, and he said, outrageous. And I think he was being funny. Um, whether Smollett should sell anymore, I think the bookshop is represents a sort of shadow of academia, but it's often academia filters down through the national curriculum into our school children, our university studies, there's a, there's a shadow basically, mm. it's a bit out of date, the idea that certain books are classic and must be stocked and read. There was that controversy a few years ago that not all of Hemingway sells, so mm. should books shops bother to stock all of Hemingway? Mm. Some of Hemingway is absolutely amazing. Mm. Um, there are definitely books we stock, like Boswell's Life of Johnson, I don't know how often you sell it here because you know it's a wonderful book, mm. but it's not for everybody. Um, I've never been asked for the Pilgrim's Progress, astonishingly, except once in Canterbury in 30 years. And that doesn't really sell, and yet that's a sort of go-to part of literary history. The Ingoldsby Legends, written in Canterbury, never been asked for it. R.H. Yeah. Barham. Um, I don't think I've ever been asked for the Ingoldsby Legends either, even though you know you can that they're around in multiple copies in every second-hand bookshop. Yeah. Um, whereas another comfort book, Story of Sam Michele, um, 
goes on and on. Yes. Um, I mean, oh, sorry, I sound make it sound as though I'm that's a weary thing. I adore that book. But and it actually sells. What is yeah. it about the tone of Axel? I can't pronounce his surname. Yeah. Month. Yeah. There's something about. I think it's got a personal engagement. I think yeah. that's. I think that could be one of the things that unites all those books. And I've never thought about it till this moment. Is that Dodie Smith, who wrote Capture the Castle, and Axel Munth, They had a very, very warm personal engagement. As that I tell that story of Ondaatje and the English patient. How did he come up with such an extraordinary plot? And he sort of shamefacedly said in the interview I saw. Well, I didn't. I just suddenly had this sort of vision of a man blinded and damaged by a crash, just hanging on to his book. And mm. often those books come. I'm not being sort of romantic, talking about flashes of of inspiration from the sky, but they often come out of a dream, or there's something deeply personal mm. to the author about them. Yes, that's certainly true of those books. And, um, and yeah. the the the, the there is a romantic attachment to the to, to a lot of books um, of whatever nature, but um, the the sense of books I've, I've always felt that the, the books that we have on our shelves you've got to have something there, um, and there's no point having books that you're going to send or spend money sending back. In yeah. six months' time, yeah. Um, so long as you know why every book is there, then it doesn't matter if it doesn't sell because I strongly think you that. might replace it with a meretricious novel. That, uh, but what's the point of that? Because that's not going to sell either. So yeah. you have Chateaubriand, or you have Pilgrim's Progress, or if it were in print, you have the Ingoldsby Legends. Um, and it doesn't really matter if they don't sell because they have a role in our uh, approach to culture. Um, and if they, if you have them, then they might sell. Um, but there's no point replacing them with things that are of very, very ephemeral yeah. or scant. I think there's an important cultural canon anyway that might be disconnected with what's been esteemed at university. I think that's true. And what you've just said would sound very strange to the other retailers nearby in King's Road. I'm thinking if you go into Mulberry or something and ask them in Bond Street. Yeah. Um, there, might be a ver there may be a version of that in a clothes shop, but I think a bookshop has to have this hinterland to be both comforting and convincing. And isn't it wonderful when someone does come in for Chateaubriand and you've got yes. it, that will bring them back, or you've yes. heard of Chateaubriand. But and the, you find that it. hinterland is, uh, ha, ha, do you find that your sense of that hinterland shifts um, as the years go by because of your, your interaction with yes. customers? And I love and that, yeah. Yes. I quite love the fact that I often think when I'm sending books back to the publisher who've had, that have had massive reviews, um, often by somebody who may or may not know the author, um, that I feel like the Grim Reaper. Yes. Like, this was <laughs> crap, I suspected it was crap, and now it's going off, sadly. Sorry, Greta Thunberg, possibly to be pulped at Penguin's Pulping Land. Yeah. And so it does give you a shifting view, yeah, a shifting view. And also, in poetry, I'll always want to have Shelley, 
um, mm. that he doesn't sell as well as Mary Shelley over in fiction. Mm. And that's quite a nice thing to acknowledge and know about and actually think why. And Thomas Hardy's poetry um, sells well in that little edition with Claire Tomlin's introduction. Mm. And he's wonderful. So it's good to, um, it's important to keep a decent poetry section. Um, and if people come in for all those Instagram poets and they, every now and again they pick up um, by them mm. or something, then great. Mm. John Sander always used to say that, although he knew perfectly well that poetry didn't sell, he felt that it, it was important that a, if he wanted to feel like a good bookshop, he should have a good poetry yeah. section. And I suppose I broadly have that and view I, too. I think it commercially works. It's like having a decent bird table, well-made bird table. The birds yes. will come to what's on it, the yes. stuff you want to put out there. And I, I had a bookseller who had the complete Blake on the table and I said this does this sell and he he just said um, no but it should and I quite like that arrogance yeah have yeah. it there well that um, comes back to another thing which is that the books that you have are the books that you select and every in going back to the market stalls the books that that people go to different market stalls because they have different things they yes. go to two booksellers for their selections and nowadays the, se the selections are made by prize lists and the media and booksellers f tend to fall into line behind that which means that through a sort of a, a cultural accident but possibly because they've allowed it to happen they've forfeited to a great extent that old-fashioned role of selecting books yeah and uh, I th think that it's a what you describe your books are doing saying putting Blake on the table I'm putting it there because that is my selection and um, if somebody likes that then they'll come back and um, to this shop not another one to this yeah. shop uh, I think that that sense of a distinctive selection is very important. And I think he would speak about Blake with such passion, he'd probably help people to buy it anyway, and yeah. he would be a bit of an educator in that role. Yeah. And serendipity is important because they don't know, a lot of people don't know what they want as you see them coming in the door until they go. And I'm sure you and I have heard thousands, if not millions of times, as somebody's taking their purchase. Uh, that they, they didn't intend to buy this many books. Yes. Which is, and that other phrase, I could spend all day in here, yeah. which I think we just dismiss. Yeah. We hear it so often, but yeah. it's quite extraordinary to be in a place which people routinely say, I could spend all day in here. I don't think they say that in the Peter Jones carpet department or no. over in H&M or no. in any other shop no. I can think of. Um, so I think that the reason they want to spend all day is because of this big hinterland we're talking about, mm. which is so necessary. There was a time when HMV got us into turnover mm. you know, when they ran Waterstones, um, a slightly depressing short period, and they worked out that we should just sell the best sellers, and the reductio absurdum of that would be we'd just have Harry Potter, because they always mm. went on about the Trocadero. But does that mean that you pile up the more and more copies of the same book, or does it mean to, uh, to fill I think I think they meant that they'd assess the turnover of all the stock 
in the bookshops is what they wanted to do and increase that turnover to something like seven or eight and they boasted about the fact that HMV one of their HMV shops had a turnover of 11 or something but of course in there you wouldn't have been able to get Woody Guthrie but you would mm. have got Bob Dylan so mm. we think we need the book version of Woody, Woody Guthrie and indeed Blind Lemon Jefferson as mm. well as Bob Dylan. Mm. Um, that hinterland though is uh, fed increasingly by one's sense of customers loving books and time and time again I've felt that a customer I've been become aware of a customer loving a book and thinking oh okay that's not on any canon that I know mm. but uh, it's obviously an extremely interesting book or you become aware that a book is has a, uh, an importance outside the Academy yeah. and that is um, you must have had I think yeah I think the woman who I mentioned in the book who bought Testament of Youth and she always buys it an older woman she said she always buys it for women girls when they become 20 she just gives them Testament of Youth they might read it they might not I don't care but it's yeah. like a coming of age better than a communion Bible yeah. to give and I think this is another unwritten about thing is we talk about booksellers and recommendation it's very top down but what they give us it's like I remember reading a book about Indian music and the way that Indian music is is about 50% the way the audience reacts mm. and the way that a bookshop is is so much made by the customer's reaction to that hinterland so uh, somebody recently asked me for Stanislav Lem and I grandly thought yes Stanislav Lem he wrote Solaris which was a film I've seen with George Clooney and she enthused about it such a lot and said yes I'm buying it for someone else but you know Fiasco is a better book and I couldn't, I didn't have the guts to say, I haven't read mm. Solaris. I've only seen what I'm told is a crappy remake of the classic mm. Tarkovsky mm. film, I think. So she really educated me and made me feel so ignorant that I went, I, after that I read Fiasco. And I mean, Lem is amazing, Polish inspired Philip K. Dick, H.G. Wells loved him. So that was a case mm. of a customer just pulling something out of the fairly obscure hinterland. And there are mm. far more obscure ones that you and I can think of. Mm. customer recommendation makes it's a conversation between yes. between us and the customer yeah. every bookshop yeah. and I want customers um, to know that because they often are quite intimidated because they think we know so much and in fact they're amazed it's almost supernatural that we know a book just by a half-assed title um, mm. but I think they they make it together I think it's a conversation and I think it's like an orchestral it's a it's contrapuntal that's the word yes yes um, uh, back to your book another thing that you talk about is marginalia yes um, which is well it's closely allied to what you're talking about people loving books and having a personal engagement with them but the process of writing on them yeah I am like a eunuch in the harem in that I can talk about it but I can't do it Okay. I still have trouble writing in a book. I've got that force field, which um, I think an Instagrammer or blogger talks about, over a book. Um, but I'd like to do it more, and I do do it with books that I'm passionate about. I write in the front, mm. so I remember. But researching this book, it's become absolutely clear to me that to be a really sort of great, broad, groundbreaking thinker, 
those people have had conversations and written in the text. Yeah. And so people like Newton and John Dee had elaborate symbols and um, wrote, and Blake, well Blake's a good example, Blake's commentary on Reynolds' discourses on art, mm. saying things like, this man was born to destroy art, were clearly written to be read later. Mm. They were so elaborate. And he says at one point that, that he hopes that everyone will read this. And they're now digitized. So this is not one of those annoying books where you read it and you think, oh great, he's been to the British Library. Yeah. All the marginalia I mention, pretty much all of it, is being digitized or is digitized. And right. then you can read it. Coleridge's marginalia, there's some debate over, over whether he invented the word marginalia. He wrote so copiously on everything that Charles Lamb would lend him books to get them written on because people wanted Coleridge's mark right. on the books. And so I think this copious writing in a book also solves the problem that you and I have often encountered, we all know as customers and booksellers, someone mentions War and Peace and someone would say, oh yes, I read that, that was years ago, I can't remember. I think, bloody hell, you gave up that many hours of your yeah. life and you can't remember a damn thing about its effect yeah, on yeah. you. So that's another reason. And I know someone who, pe some people write reading journals, um, a customer rather soullessly, uh, the customer wasn't soulless, but this was a soulless way to do it, I thought, as a spreadsheet on which yeah. they write what they've read and what their thoughts are. Yes, I know so somebody who does that. Really, so it can be invisible, untouchable marginalia. Yeah. But I think some way of stapling down the effect a book had on you yeah. and what you think about it is, mm. I think, something which should come back. But I can't mm. do it with the most beautiful books. I don't write on books, but I leave, I, I don't really eat much anymore, but I used to leave pieces of paper in them. I'd write on pieces of, well, I've probably got it in yours actually, because I knew I was, you know, And you must find bits. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, uh, Students do it, don't they? Students, really. Yeah. And it's really um, annoying when you're buying a, something in a second-hand bookshop mm. and there's all these underlinings <laughs> without any useful comments. Yeah. But it's a, it's an interesting thread uh, aspect in your book where you follow this and see where it's And led. we discover how Keats developed his poetic style by his yeah. comments on Milton and... Yeah. Um, you talk also about um, booksellers in different places, Paris we've touched on. Yeah. Um, Lyon and Avignon. That was a that. huge eye-opener for me. Um, yeah, Paris, I talk a lot about the bouquinistes, the booksellers by the Seine. Um, we all know about Shakespeare's, but I've discovered other early, early bookshops in Paris, which are fascinating. Um, I was surprised at how repressive the Sorbonne was in Paris for much of French history, mm -hmm. so that Rabelais and Pascal were illegal in the city of Paris for a long, long time. Whereas Lyon, because of its unique position on trade routes to Switzerland and the south and down the Rhone, Lyon was the most extraordinarily vibrant cultural spot where a lot of smuggled texts were sold. Mm. There were an astonishing number of booksellers. There were, I think, th I said f over 50 Florentine families there, so it was a very cosmopolitan city. Mm. And the people I know who've come from Lyon as work experience people in the shop confirm that it's still like that. It's they regard themselves as the thing of thinking persons, uh, Paris. So I, I haven't been. I really want to to go there and see the bookshops. Yeah. So it was an it was a smuggler's entrepot for books and a vigorous centre of publishing. And it beat censorship. Yeah. And it sent books often down the river to Avignon, where there's this extraordinary anomaly, 
where because of the papal dispute over the papacy in the Middle Ages, where nobody could decide on a pope, the local French count just appointed someone, a French nobleman, to be the pope, but the pope decided, well, I'm going to live at Avignon. So that was, as it were, the Vatican for a while. And in an extraordinary and quite charming way, that legalistic enclave remained so for centuries, long after the little debate over the Avignon papacy. So to cut a long story short, Avignon was a strange liberty in publishing, and it had the most extraordinary numbers. I mean, 30, 40, 50, 60 bookshops for a very small town, loads of printing presses, and so everything flowered there that was censored by Paris. So I call that chapter Surviving the Sorbonne. And I think the uh, this is a lot of this concerned not just the Reformation, but the flowering of the Enlightenment. So Voltaire was our, could, Voltaire's works came in from Switzerland where he was living into Lyon, Pascal, Rabelais, a lot of these great free thinkers. We might think of them as being read vigorously in Paris, but really... And they were it proscribed. They were proscribed, and it was the provinces, especially Lyon and Avignon, yeah. and back to those peddlers who were flogging them in. Literally, we talk about pop-up bookshops now. These guys had carts, the yeah. side dropped down, and suddenly you've got a shop. Yeah. And they would fight the censors, and they, the smugglers fought the customs, bringing the books to Lyon, often with pistols. And how do you feel that this, uh, that the word censorship applies or not to what you do now? Mm. Do you As in, well, obviously we sell books um, which you wouldn't. What, what did you have to say in the Lady Chatterley trial? I don't think your servants. Would your servant really want to read this? Yeah, we'll, yeah or your wife, I think. All the stuff. I can't remember. I think there are books that which we wouldn't want to... Would, nobody would agree with Marquis de Sade's ideas. And it's funny, when there's talk of censorship in a bookshop, that mm. we just cheerfully carry on selling mm. the, the Marquis de Sade and books like Vox and some pretty pretty horrible stuff with pretty horrible passages in. Yeah. Um, I don't feel, I think we're lucky in this country, I don't feel a great censorship. I told the story of Olga Karatidi, the old Siberian academic who came yes. to the shop to give a talk. She was sort yeah. of shaman as well, I think, on the quiet. And she's now invisible, can't track out where she is at all. And there are other people on the internet trying to find out where she is. But she was hypnotic. She published by HarperCollins, a mainstream publisher. And she came in the shop and as she walked upstairs, she was began sort of really tearing up, as they say. And I was concerned as to what was wrong. And she said, there's just so many books free to read. Because, of course, she remembers the Samizdat era yeah. in Russia when people were photocopying books overnight yeah. in government offices and you couldn't get Pasternak and you could be sent yeah. to the gulag. So I think we're very lucky. Um, we're lucky that we don't have that kind of censorship. Yeah. Uh, certainly. But there are things I disagree with Waterstones about um, in that I'd love to and I don't mind who listens to this I think we should stock all the ordnance survey maps comes back to the hinterland <laughs> the idea that you stock the best selling ones and you don't yes. have Isla yeah. is crazy and when you do stock them all people beat apart your door because they suddenly want yes. them at the last minute and even the most technically sophisticated person agrees that you need to know where you are in a broader way and last time I checked, 4G wasn't in Applecross. <laughs> um, there was an article in The Guardian about the least visited place and the most unpopular map hmm. um, in Britain. I think it's rather wonderful to have that in stock. But that's, yeah, I, yes, but that's not... I mean, it, it that's might a trivial commercial, trivial commercial in a way, debate within Waterstones. It's, it's a different... 
kind of censorship. It's the censorship of market forces in yes. that sense. But uh, I, I, I suppose that's what it's presented as. But um, Mein Kampf, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Mm. These sorts of David Icke. Um, yeah. Um, what do you do about well about them? David Icke, for instance. That's a fascinating subject because he's got anti-Semitic yeah. leanings. Um, so if somebody comes to order him, would you? Yes, I'd get him. Yeah. I'd get anything that somebody ordered. Yeah. Um, definitely. I don't think it's our job to um, censor. I think that our job is to get books and to provide books. So if somebody orders something, then I would, I would definitely get it if I could, however much I disliked it. Yeah. Um, uh, stocking them is slightly different, but um, yeah, I, I, I suppose I do feel that a bookseller should be making. Uh, words available rather than yeah I had someone recently in the way of them. I had someone recently who asked for a biography of Cecil Rhodes because they wanted to know more about Cecil Rhodes mm. and it's they did not agree with the statue being removed and mm. Chris Patton made a very um, reasoned argument against the statue being mm. removed and a lot of liberal booksellers would think well it should have been removed and times have changed fast and I didn't I can't, I can't, to be honest, I didn't particularly like the man. I know it's not a very yeah. professional thing to say. Because <laughs> he then went on to say he wanted a book on white slavery because he said, you know, there was a lot of white slavery. It's not just all about yeah. black slavery. So he was not a likeable person. But there was absolutely no way, it was my own bookshop or Waterstones, that I'd say, uh, go somewhere else. He'd get it yeah. off the internet anyway. Yes. Um, so let let people learn and research I both sides yes. of every question. I think uh, it's not for us to speculate on what's happened to the state of the world, but surely not seeing the other side and living in an echo chamber is part of the problem rather than part of the solution. Yes, and, and, and it's better that they should be getting them in an open bookshop rather than on the internet where they will get them, and then yeah. that seems to me not a good result. And I don't know about you, John, I was moved in the bookshop by just how... Books, booksellers have been, as it were, freedom fighters. Not, it's not too much that doesn't understate it. Etienne Dolle in France being burnt on a pile of his own books. So many booksellers have been burnt, stayed, well, locked up, locked down. Yes. So I think we betray that heritage and we underestimate the potential of bookshops if we start to get. Um, there was a curious incident a few years ago, wasn't there? Um, there was a some bookshop attacked near the British Museum by there was some. I mean, it it's funny we haven't been attacked. Swedenborg Society. Oh, I, I know the Swedenborg bookshop. I think yeah. there was a, there's a there is a bookshop there, and I yeah. think some uh, they were drunk and Nazi louts. Yeah. But it was, and I forget the occasion, but it was a unpleasant thing. Bookshops are seen as special though, aren't they? Because people picket cinemas that show objectionable films and they have riots, but I think people respect the fact that bookshops are somehow um, a portal to a wider c 
culture in general and occasionally places like Gaze the Word will be outrageously firebombed by outright, outright mm. homophobes but I think mm. bookshops have got a, bookshops and booksellers have got a pleasantly separate feel well the, I hear with dismay sometimes that, that um, no platforming um, and perhaps they ha people have reasons for doing it that I don't know about. Yeah. Um, or don't perhaps understand particularly. But I do feel that in a bookshop, one should not be no platforming mm. authors. Um, even though one sometimes gets a bit of flack from customers for not appearing to. One does. I mean, I had I hate mail about Jonathan Aitken, um, who was a wonderful customer of mm. in Canterbury because he's Kentish, who was tied up mm. with Aspinall and everyone, wasn't he? Yes. And he used to love the recommends cards we wrote, and then he made a horrible mistake, which he's admitted, which perjured yeah. his daughter and, he, and served his term in prison. Wrote a book, came out. We got him back to give a talk, and people were extremely angry. And I thought, well give the bloke a chance does imprisonment not mean that you've served some sort of he's term had he's had his punishment as it were yeah. and he's one of those rare people who from what I gather from interviews has genuinely done a lot of good since then and taken holy orders and seems to have seen the light and doesn't unlike certain politicians we could mention, maybe <laughs> Tony Blair after the Iraq war, uh, if an apology is in order I'll make it, he doesn't make any attempt to dress up what he did. If you listen to his Desert yeah. Island he said, I did a crime, it was wrong, it was a stupid thing to do, and I deserved my sentence. Um, so here's an example of where if I'd gone with the flow maybe of customer protest or the no platforming yeah. attitude, I would have said, let's not have him, he's done a bad thing. Yeah. Same with Ronnie Casrills, who was worked for Nelson Mandela. And if there were people in South Africa who'd been damaged by ANC terrorism, or whichever way you want to call it, you call it if it's, you call it the ANC freedom fighters or terrorists, I could see they would have hated me for having Ronnie Casrills mm. in the shop. And just before he came, he was about to be banned by the Home Office for coming in the country. I think someone like Roy Jenkins. I've got the timing is vague let him in so it was quite touch and go whether he'd be even be allowed in the country mm. but he came and gave a talk and there was a healthy debate and there were some people there from there from south africa uh, and i think the debate was more useful than mm. just saying no platforming the guy's controversial he has been linked to terrorism mm. and i think the same thing applied to jerry adams we know that he had a book 30 40 years ago yes. he gave bookshop talks if they can't talk in a bookshop, where are they, where going, are they to going to be heard? Where else are they going to be bloody challenged? Because yeah. you know, uh, as well as I do, customers are very vocal. Well, that's often a very nice thing. Sometimes it can be a bit unnerving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so, is there anything else that you particularly would like to... Um, I... Loved, um, I love the medieval marginalia, we haven't mentioned that, and it is a, it's an outlier, as Malcolm Gladwell would say, and rather an oddity, but I think the, the medieval books and their writing and drawings in them are another way of pe people have engaged with the text in a very unofficial way, so it's unofficial like chat books and unrecorded 
like marginalia. And so I think um, I think that chapter illuminates something important about what would now be called the democratization of knowledge, culture, just those extraordinary pictures in the margins of medieval books. Mm. Um, so I suppose it was a lot fascinating that actually the, yeah. the sense of the scribes um, inserting their characters into the texts that they were copying. The monks going up ladders, pictures of monks going up ladders putting letters into the book. I couldn't get permission to um, represent the ones I wanted to represent pictorially because a, lo a lot of the libraries were were closed but um, one or two are represented. I suppose the whole book is about popular culture and if there's one thing that booksellers are in touch with maybe by what my art buyer called cultural osmosis when he mm. started stocking books by Banksy and I'd never heard of Banksy and I mm. said how have you heard of him? I asked him recently, he said oh just cultural osmosis. I do think we're in touch with cultural changes even though we're in well-heeled Chelsea mm. and I'm in well-heeled bookshop in Canterbury there's something about being a bookseller that keeps you in touch with what's going on so you know about a colouring craze, craze or an Elena Ferrante yeah. Uh, long before every errand boy in the street is not all knows about it. such things, but but one picks it's very whimsical. Yes, um, something which I've often felt rather uh, not exactly sorry for publishers about, but it must be difficult for publishers sometimes that they see a shop get excited about one book that they've done yes. and do really well with it. So it would be natural for that editor or publicist in that publisher to think, right, okay, we've got a nice run with so this So imitative. And um, so the next book they do, they send it to you, uh, expecting you to sell 100 copies. And, and the rep says it's just like. And you say, thanks, no thanks. Mm. Um, and you sell zero. And the publisher must feel so cross because you did so well with whatever they did last year. And then this year they provided just the same thing and you've snubbed it and instead you've gone after some really odd uh, yeah. thing and sold that instead. Um, I remember someone in publishing said to me in despair that they worked in Random House years ago and something about Celt interest in the Celts was on the radio in the morning and they had a phone call from the CEO as soon as they got in saying, what, why aren't we publishing something on the Celts? And it was ridiculous to sort of just go with a flutter mm. on the radio mm. like that, mm. that imitativeness. Mm. Um, yeah, things... But I think that's why the, there are so... M in, in what is in a way quite a small business publishing, there are so many, and it's not particularly lucrative, um, there are a lot of highly intelligent people who love it and they're all desperately trying to recreate the conditions for last year's bestsellers and what else have they got to go to on um, but they need the booksellers to follow them or go with them and the booksellers don't. I think there's a good analogy from film, now the booksellers are because they're closer to the fact that customers have probably moved on from that already um, I remember when everyone thought vampire the angels were in, but vampires were in, and Stephanie Meyer were in, and angels were out the window. Yes. Um, I think I heard an interview with the director of Apocalypse Now once, and he said that Coppola, isn't it? Yeah. He said studios came to him after Apocalypse Now for decades, saying, 
can you make something like Apocalypse Now? And he yeah. said, hang on, if I came to you with the Apocalypse Now idea, you would say it's yes. outrageous, you won't do it. Yeah. So there's that yeah. amusing, uh, yeah, if, if I had come with the Apocalypse Now, you would have said no, I'm not making yeah. that. Uh, and in the same way you get so many books which are, uh, if, if you describe them, you'd say, oh, that's not going to work. Um, yeah. And you can imagine... I love that aspect of yes, the job. Yes, uh, and, and uh, it's, it's the sense of it's not, it's not what you do, it's the way that you do it. Mm. Um, uh, Who would have thought Shot's miscellany would have worked? Yeah, or Hair with the Amber Eyes. Or yeah, um, and I know from it insiders that the Hair of the Amber Eyes nearly didn't get published, or the book on Montaigne, the Sarah Bakewell book. Yeah, yeah that nearly didn't get published. In oh, fact, the, Jenny Uglow was the editor, and she said, "I told them I could do it," and she's yeah. highly respected. But even then, they tried to say no. People aren't yeah. interested. I think people are far more curious yeah. than the publishers give them credit for. Yeah. And I talk in the book about the fact that when the Olympics come along, there'll be loads of books on the Olympics. People don't really want a book on the Olympics. Or when there's a big Van Gogh exhibition, there'll be yeah. half a shelf published of books on Van Gogh. So you can't fit in the people who inspired Van Gogh. You can't have a decent art section. If you took every one of the books that Lund Humphreys, National yeah. Portrait Gallery, everyone's showing you new books on Van Gogh, jumping on a massive bandwagon, yeah. better to have a decent art section that Van Gogh himself might have been interested yes. in. Yeah. Than jumping on the bandwagon of um, yeah books about such stuff in the news. Yeah. Um, I think we should wrap it up and let yeah. you go home. I think it's um, been extremely enjoyable. Martin, thank you very much indeed. The book is available from the first week in September, and uh, I haven't talked to Martin yet about this. We. Uh, haven't got copies yet so he can't sign them um, but I will ask him if he'll sign some book plates yes. that we can stick into the books Happily. Um, and uh, let us know if you'd like a copy thank you for listening thank you very much Tony it was very enjoyable